Hi, and welcome to Harvest Bible Chapel, Kuala Lumpur Online. We hope that the following message will be a blessing to you as you seek to walk with the Lord in spirit and in truth. For more information about our church, please visit www.harvestkl.org or click the link in the description below. thank the elders uh, for inviting me once again to uh, share God's word with you this morning. Uh, this morning we, our text is from Philippians chapter 2 verse 12 to 18 and uh, Paul described uh, in this uh, few verses there about uh, that we live in a crooked and depraved generation. <clears throat> Meaning that uh, we live in a broken world, a world that is uh, dominated by sin and darkness. Uh, this broken world, we see it in, in our news every day. Uh, it is uh, broken by global terrorism. Lives are being lost through suicide bombings, uh, rampant gun events, and so on. And then there's broken to climate change, you know, we hear that now uh, rising to extreme weather patterns, the sea levels are rising and threatening uh, to uh, destroy uh, millions of lives that live along uh, the coast and that uh, many needs to be uh, uh, displaced. And then there is this uh, recent uh, global uh, pandemic COVID-19 that has uh, destroyed, that has killed millions and destroyed uh, economies that the government of the world are still struggling uh, to uh, manage and to recover from. So this uh, broken world, Paul described it to young Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 3, that uh, these are terrible times that we're going to live in in the last days. And we are certainly in the last days, as even Paul was telling Timothy that uh, they were in the last days. And it says that the people in those last days, uh, they are crooked and they are depraved. How? Paul described it very clearly there, that the people will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boastful, proud, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, without love, unforgiving, slanderous, without self-control. And we, we see the manifestation of these uh, features of these uh, people. Uh, every time we turn on the TV, right? It says that the people in the last days will be brutal, they are not lovers of good, they are treacherous, they are rash, they are considered, they are lovers of pleasures rather than lovers of God. And they have a form of godliness, but they deny the power of it. And Paul is basically describing what Jesus himself said in uh, Matthew 24. He says that uh, in the last days, many will turn away from the faith. Uh, many false prophets will appear and deceive many people. And because of the increase of wickedness, the wickedness that Paul has described to young Timothy, he says the love of most will grow cold, right? But then Jesus says that he who stands firm to the end uh, will be saved. So the title of my sermon this morning I've chosen is to stand firm uh, in our faith. And in Philippians chapter 2, verse 12 to 18, uh, Paul called the Philippian church to action. Uh, so that they can uh, stand firm in their faith. It's a threefold action that will enable them to shine forth like stars in the universe so that they do not turn away 
from their faith so that their love uh, will not grow cold. So we will unpack this uh, threefold action. Before we do that, let's uh, come to God in prayer and ask Him uh, to guide us. Father God, we thank you so much that uh, you give us this opportunity once again to worship you and to listen to your word. We want to stand firm in our faith and we ask, Lord, that you will help us to endure to the end until Jesus Christ comes again or until our days here are done. We pray, Lord, that you will guide us now into your word and into your truth. Set us free so that we do not sin willfully against you. And we pray that as we uh, read and hear uh, your word, we pray that our hearts will be warm, that our minds will be enlightened, our spirit will be inspired so that we can stand firm in our faith uh, for you. In Jesus' precious name, uh, we pray. <clears throat> now let's read the text and uh, see what Paul said about his call for action. It's in verse 12, he says, Therefore, my dear friends, as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. This is the first action, to work out our faith with our salvation with fear and trembling. Verse uh, 13, For it is God who calls, who works in you to will and to act according to his good purpose. Do everything without complaining or arguing. This is the second action that Paul called the Philippian church to. Do everything without complaining or arguing so that you may become blameless and pure children of God without fault in a crooked and deprived generation in which you shine like stars in the universe as you hold out or hold on to the word of life. This is the third action that uh, Paul in these uh, seven verses is calling them to, to hold out and to hold on or to hold on. There's two possible rendering of this uh, word here in the Hebrew. The word hold on to the word of life in order that I may boast on the day of Christ that I did not run or labor in, uh, for nothing. But even if I am being poured out like a drink offering on the sacrifice and service coming from your faith, I am glad and rejoice with all of you. So you too should be glad and rejoice with me. So Paul is calling the Philippian church uh, to this threefold action, action that will help advance the gospel according to God's good purpose, action that will make them ready for uh, the day of Christ. This is what Paul wrote in verse 16. Now, so in these seven verses, uh, Paul outlined these uh, three uh, actions which I would like to unpack for you. To work out our salvation in verse 12, to do everything without complaining or arguing in verse 14, and to hold on or to hold out, uh, hold out or to hold on to our, the word of life in verse uh, 16. What does, what does Paul mean to work out our salvation? 
Paul is definitely not saying that we can work for our salvation. To work out our salvation is different from working for our salvation. For sure, or we can be sure that Paul does, uh, does not mean uh, that we can work. That means we can earn our salvation through our works. Because there are two passages that he makes this very clear. I'm sure that uh, some of this uh, passage we are all familiar with. Uh, to the church in Ephesus in Ephesians 2, verse 8 to 10, Paul wrote, For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. So, Paul is very clear. We, our salvation is by God's grace, and it is through our faith. And he says that this is not from ourselves. That means uh, we cannot work for it, right? It is the gift of God. That means God gives it to us. We do not earn it. Uh, and verse 9, he says, not by works. Very, very explicit, right? So we cannot boast before God. That means we cannot come before God and say, oh, because I've done this, so therefore I can be saved. No, right? Our salvation is a gift from God by His grace as a gift uh, to our faith. And then in verse 10 of uh, Ephesians 2, it says, For we are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus. So there is a new uh, creation that takes place uh, in a person's life and that uh, create new creation is to do good works which God prepared in advance for, do, uh, for us to do. And this is in verse 10 of Ephesians 2. So this uh, good God's good purpose for our new creation in Christ is to do good works. So the good works does not earn us the, the, our salvation. But once we are saved, once we have God received a gift from God as our salvation, uh, God, you can say, expects us to do good works as uh, evidence that salvation has entered our heart. So this is in Ephesians chapter 2. In uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, to the church in Corinth, Paul writes this, which is also a, a familiar text that we all know, that tells us that our salvation is uh, something that is created anew in us, not because of our own works. Uh, so in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, and verse 17 says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has gone and the new has come. So this is what Paul, Paul is saying in Ephesians chapter 2 and in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Uh, is reflecting what Jesus himself taught in John chapter 3 uh, when he told uh, uh, Nicodemus, right? That uh, to enter the kingdom of God, you need to be born anew. You need to be born again. That means... Uh, Without this uh, new creation, which only God can do in us, uh, there is no salvation. So, when Paul talks about we need to work out our salvation, he's not talking about working for our salvation, because in Paul's mind, there is no work that we can do that can earn us the salvation. The salvation is already in us, given to us as a free gift uh, by God. So this working out of our salvation is to do the good works that God has prepared for us to do. Outside of Christ, that means when a person has not become a believer in the old nature, our good works is 
just not acceptable before God. Why? Because the scripture tells us that our good works in God's eyes when we are outside of Christ is like filthy rags. This is uh, revealed to us in uh, the Old Testament through the prophet Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 64 and verse 6. Uh, there it says that all of us, that means everyone, there's no exception, have become like one who is unclean. One who is unclean in God's eyes is just not acceptable. Right? And all our righteous acts, that means the good deeds that we can do, they are all like filthy rags. Meaning that what do you do with filthy rags, right? You throw it away. Right? It's just not acceptable. But in Christ, in the New Testament, when we have been made new, our righteous acts, that means the same good deeds, the same righteous acts that we do, is described by uh, Jesus when he revealed, uh, given the revelation, uh, the, his prophecy to uh, the Apostle John in Revelation, towards the end of Revelation, where Jesus was telling them at the wedding feast of the Lamb. It says in Revelation chapter 19 and verse 8, it says there that the fine linen, that means uh, pure and white, clean, will be given to the bride of the Lamb. The bride of the Lamb are the saints, the church, right? And it says that our righteous acts, in, in fact, it is actually explained in verse 8 of Revelation 19, that the fine linen, uh, as, as compared to the filthy rags, stands for the righteous acts of the saints. Who are the saints? The saints are those that have been created anew. The, the saints are those who have received salvation through, by faith uh, through God's grace. And so therefore, this uh, working out of our salvation is not to work for our salvation through good deeds, rather that the salvation has already taken place in a person's heart and the evidence of that salvation has to be worked out by doing the good deeds, the righteous acts, which now is seen to be a pure fine linen in God's eyes. Before a person is uh, created anew, before a person is saved, that those good deeds and so on, it's not acceptable, it's like 15 minutes. So, but Paul goes on to say, say in verse 18, he says that, but we cannot do these good works on our own. That means, without Christ, if you do those good works, it is not acceptable before God. It's like 15 minutes. But with God, uh, in verse 8, it says, God is at work in us and with us. That means the gospel that Paul preaches, the gospel of salvation, requires a partnership between God and man. That means what God does, or what God does, what we cannot do for ourselves. That is uh, to buy us salvation, right? But after we have received that salvation, which is uh, accomplished by Christ who died on the cross and then was risen to life again, this we cannot do on our own, right? So in a sense, what we can say is that without God, we cannot be saved, right? Or we cannot do the good deeds that is acceptable before him. But without us, God will not. Meaning that God in his sovereign plan have chosen to work through us and to, to work in us and to work with us in partnership in order to bring about uh, the good purpose that he has uh, designed uh, for man's uh, redemption. Okay, so I think uh, it is uh, essential that we understand this clearly, that Paul is talking about working out our salvation 
that God has done it, but it is not that uh, God has done it and man doesn't need to do anything, right? It is very clear in the Gospel uh, that is recorded for us in the Holy Scripture that God now requires uh, and even commands that uh, man needs to repent and to obey. Now, to repent is not just a one-time act that we say the sinner's prayer at the time that we decide to uh, accept Christ. And then after that, uh, we live our lives uh, according to our own uh, our way. No. Uh, Paul recognized uh, that uh, even after we have been made anew, even after we have uh, been saved, there will be time where we succumb to temptation and we fall into sin. And that's where we need to repent. And this repentance is the turning away from sin. And the obedience is to turning away from sin and turning towards God and to walk in His righteousness. Uh, Paul described it this way at two places in the book of Acts. Uh, in Acts 17 and verse 30, uh, when he was preaching in, in Athens, uh, he was telling this, he says, In the past, that means before Christ come, God overlooked the ignorance of uh, men. But now, he commands all people everywhere to repent. So, to repent is not an option. An option is something that you can uh, choose, and if you don't want to uh, pick up that option, it's fine. But no, repentance is not just an option. Repentance in God's eyes is a command. So, if you don't repent, you are disobedient, and disobedience comes with its uh, penalties and its consequences. And then in Acts uh, 26 and, uh, chapter 26 and verse 20, Paul, when he was in Caesarea, uh, when he was testifying before King Agrippa, he describes uh, repentance and uh, salvation this way. He says, Paul preached that the Jews and the Gentiles, they should repent and turn to God. That means both the Jews and Gentiles are the same. And then they need to prove their repentance uh, by their deeds. Okay, so this uh, proving of the repentance by their deeds is what Paul described here in Philippians 2 as working out your salvation. Or in Ephesians, is to, uh, is to uh, do the good deeds that God has prepared before us, uh, for us in, as part of this new creation. So, uh, the essential point I want to make here is that we should not think that uh, our to be saved is just to uh, get ourselves a ticket to heaven and then after that uh, we are assured uh, there and then we can live our earthly life uh, any way we like. Uh, this, this idea of uh, getting our, our assurance to heaven and then we can live life as we like on this earth. It's a deception. It is a lie of the evil one. No. The, the plan of salvation that God has worked in the gospel of Jesus Christ is that uh, He wants us, of course, to give us the assurance that we will get into heaven. But the, the, is, the, the heaven doesn't start after we die or when Christ comes. Heaven starts now on earth. That we need to live this new life uh, in our bodies and that uh, we need to uh, do the good deeds that Christ came to do, right? And uh, in some ways, I think Paul described this good uh, deeds or this good purpose 
that uh, he wrote about in uh, Philippians 2, uh, much better when he wrote uh, his uh, letter to the Romans, in Romans chapter 12, uh, verse 1 and 2, uh, I think he expressed it better this way. He says, our salvation is based on God's mercy, right? Uh, and he says, in view of God's mercy, therefore, Paul urged Christians, in view of God's mercy, to offer our bodies uh, as living sacrifice uh, to, to God, holy and pleasing to Him. That means there is, uh, there is something that we need to do while we are still in this body as a sacrifice to God, right? That we are not just uh, saved and then uh, should go to heaven and then after that uh, we can live our life uh, the way we please. No, in verse 2 of Romans 12, he says that uh, this uh, God's purpose is that do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world. That means we cannot be the same. We cannot be conformed to the pattern of this world, but we need to be transformed by the renewing of our mind. That means there needs to be uh, that, that, that new nature, that, that this new new creation that needs to take place. And his Paul says that this is the good, pleasing and perfect will of God. This is God's good purpose. So, to work out our salvation is not to earn our salvation by good deeds. Uh, because our good deeds before we are saved are just filthy rags. To work out our salvation is to do good works that God has prepared for us to do in Christ. And this is seen as clean linen. right? And we need to partner with God to advance uh, this gospel first in us and then uh, to the world. So the question that we need to uh, consider and reflect is how are you or how are we working out our salvation with God in our hearts. What good work is God calling us to do today to transform ourselves or to trans or to share with someone's life or to change some someone's life through uh, the good deeds that we are called to do. So I spend quite a fair bit of time to explain this first action that uh, Paul is calling the Philippian church to do that we need to work out our salvation. And then he goes on to say that we need to do everything. Uh, that means to live our earthly life without complaining or arguing. Now what does Paul mean by to do everything without complaining or arguing? Humanly speaking, is this even possible? The natural self wants to argue and to complain, right? The argue is to give reasons or to cite evidence in support of an idea or an action that we want to take. We, you can say you argue for this reason, right? Or with the aim of persuading other people to share our view, right? Uh, or put it another way, to, to argue is to exchange or to express divergent or opposite views. Usually, uh, depending on what the issue is, usually it's in a heated and a, a bit of an angry fashion, right? And to complain is to express dissatisfaction or, or annoyance uh, about something, okay? And Paul is just saying, no, you should do things without complaining or arguing. Now, Paul cannot mean that we don't have or we don't hold an opinion or express it strongly or to put it firmly uh, if necessary. 
right? Because Paul himself does it. In Acts chapter 19 and verse 8, when Paul was in Ephesus, uh, when he was in the synagogue, and then he was trying to, uh, he said, in, fact, in Acts 19 verse 8, he said, for three months, Paul spoke boldly, and he argued persuasively. About what? About the kingdom of God. And this is the, the difference, right? Paul argued persuasively about the kingdom of God. And then in 1 Corinthians chapter 2 and verse 4, Paul puts it this way. He said, my message and my preaching were not with wise and persuasive words, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power, so that your faith might not rest on man's wisdom, but on God's grace. So Paul, for Paul, his argument was for the kingdom of God, to build others up not to divide or to tear other people down, right? So for Paul, his reasoning is based on the revealed word of God, not on the philosophies of this world. The way Paul puts it, that when he writes to, uh, to his co-worker Titus, in Titus chapter 3, uh, Paul writes it this way, in verse 8 to 10, he says, For I, Paul, <coughs> uh, want you, Titus, to stress these things, so that those who have trusted in God may be careful to devote themselves to doing what is good. This is the first action, right? To do what is good, to work out uh, our salvation. It says these things are excellent and profitable for everyone. So Paul is stressing that uh, his argument is to uh, promote what is excellent, what is profitable, and is for everyone. And then in verse 9 of Titus 3, it says, But avoid foolish controversies about and genealogies and arguments and quarrels about the law because they were unprofitable and useless. Right? And so Paul is trying to say that don't get into arguments uh, that is unprofitable, that is useless. And oftentimes this is what happens, right? You over an issue uh, that... Uh, <clears throat> two different uh, parties are involved in, uh, we begin to argue uh, and end up with uh, divisions and uh, that is unprofitable and useless. And then in verse 10 of Titus 3, it says you want a decisive person once and then a second time after that have nothing to do with that person. Okay, and then you can be sure that such a person is war and sinful, he is self-condemned. So Paul is teaching Titus not to argue in such a way as to produce uh, division in the situation, right? So Paul is teaching them to avoid foolish, unprofitable, useless arguments that seek to divide and to destroy. But rather, Paul is saying in uh, <clears throat> Romans uh, 12 and verse 2, so Paul's orientation here when he tells the Philippian church that they have to do everything without complaining or arguing. He's saying that uh, don't argue, you can say for the sake of arguing, which result in <coughs> quarrels and divisions. Rather, in Romans 15 and verse 2, Paul is saying that we should, each of us should seek the good of our neighbors, as to, to build them up. That means when we, like what Paul is uh, saying when he was preaching, when he was persuading, he was arguing, he was seeking to build up uh, people's faith and people's life, not to tear them down. So 
Paul is telling the Philippian uh, church to do everything with that in mind. For example, to the church in Ephesus, Ephesians 4 and verse 29, Paul says, don't let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouth, but only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs, and that it may benefit those who listen. So when Paul talks about not complaining, not arguing, he's telling uh, the Philippian church to seek the good and to seek the benefit and to seek the building up of the church of other people's life rather than to look at yourself with the point of view of winning an argument. So like the last time I spoke, I refer you to what Paul later writes in his conclusion in Philippians chapter 4. In Paul's mind, he says that whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if there's any excellence or praiseworthy, think about such things. So Paul is telling the Philippian church to look at things from the kingdom perspective, not from yourself perspective, uh, to do things for the good and the building up and the benefit of others rather than ourselves. And Paul himself set the example, right? If we see in Philippians 4 and verse 9, he says, Whatever you have learned or received or heard from me or seen in me, put it into practice. So Paul is living out exactly what he is teaching them. And Paul tells us uh, not to complain, right? So not to argue, not to complain. To complain is to, is to grumble. Why? Because grumble expresses dissatisfaction uh, in, in our hearts. Okay? And uh, in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, Paul was referring uh, to what happened to the ancient uh, Israelites when they complained, when they grumbled uh, against uh, Moses. He says, Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 10, Paul says, Do not grumble as some of them did. And this is recorded for us in Exodus 15, chapter 15, chapter 16, and chapter 17. It says uh, they, they grumbled, uh, expressing their dissatisfaction with what they see. And God punished them uh, when he sent an angel to destroy them and kill them. And Paul says in verse 11 of 1 Corinthians 10, that these things happened to them as examples that were written uh, down as warnings for us, okay, so that uh, if we think we are standing firm, then be careful so that you don't fall. So Paul is asking or telling the Corinthian church there to look at their scriptures, to go back to what happened to those people who grumbled against uh, Moses and actually they were grumbling not just against Moses but against God because Paul says uh, to to learn from that example so that they do not complain, they do not grumble. You see, in Acts chapter, uh, in, sorry, in Exodus chapter 15, the people grumbled against Moses, saying, what, uh, what, what are we to drink here? Because the water that they found in a place called Mara and Elim, they were bitter and they couldn't drink it. Right? So God did a miracle, turned that bitter water into sweet, something that they can drink. And then, soon after that, next chapter in Exodus chapter 16, in the desert, the whole community grumbled against Moses and Aaron. And Moses told the people, God heard your grumbling against him. You are not grumbling against us, but you are grumbling against God. 
So what Paul and what Paul here is saying is that you be careful. When we are complaining, we are grumbling against uh, someone or something or in the church, that God is hearing that. Okay? And in verse uh, 3 of uh, Exodus 16, it says, they were saying, uh, this is a language of those who were grumbling, uh, when their dissatisfaction ruled in their hearts. It says, if only we had died by the Lord's hand in Egypt, there we sit around pots of meat and we ate all the food we wanted. Right? So the whole uh, focus of uh, a person who grumbles, a person who complains, is what we want, right? rather than uh, for the benefit of the other person. Okay? And then uh, he accused, or the ancient Israelites accused Moses, that what you have brought us out into this desert to starve this entire uh, community to death. They attribute uh, an intention that is completely false. Right? So, Paul is telling uh, the Philippian church, right? don't complain because when we complain, we start to attribute intentions to, to people that doesn't exist, that is not true, that is false. Okay? And of course, even in their complaint and so on, God provided, you can say, uh, answers to their problems. God provided the manna and the quail uh, when they have no water in Exodus 17 to drink in the desert. Uh, at a place called Massa or Mariba, right? Again, they grumbled and quarreled against Moses, right? And they were so angry that they, all, they wanted to stone uh, Moses, right? And they asked, so is the Lord with us or not? Okay? And of course, God heard all their grumbling and so on. And although God provided water uh, through a miracle uh, from the rock, uh, yet after they are complaining and arguing, God punished those who were grumbling uh, against them. So, be careful. Basically, that's what Paul is saying. Instead of complaining, grumbling, expressing dissatisfaction and discontent uh, with our circumstances, Paul taught the Philippian church uh, to learn to be content, right? In Philippians 4, which I'm sure we will come to that, uh, when we get to Philippians 4, he says, I have learned, and here is Paul setting the example, he says, I have learned to be content whatever the circumstances. In verse 12 of Philippians 4, he says, I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secret of being contented in any and every situation, whether it is well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. I can do everything through him, who gives me strength. So Paul, for Paul, uh, his secret uh, in not complaining, not arguing, uh, is to look to Christ. Right? It is Christ who gives me strength. And because my strength comes from Christ, Paul says, I can do everything through him. And Paul is calling the Philippian church to, to action. He says, do, you can do everything, but don't complain and don't argue. So the question for our consideration is, what are you currently complaining or arguing about? Is it time to let go and learn the secret of doing everything with contentment? So this is Paul's uh, call for second action. And the final action that Paul talks about is to hold out or to hold on 
to the word of life, not to, to hold out. I think the last time I spoke to you is about uh, to speak forth the word to advance the gospel, right? But here, the other rendering here in this verse, uh, this action is to hold on to the word of life. To hold on is to hold firmly, uh, to hold fast, is to remain in the truth of the gospel, uh, of, uh, in the word that Jesus Christ has taught us. And that, that the Spirit has been given so that He will guide us into all truth. Right? So Paul is encouraging the Philippians uh, church to hold firmly to the word that Jesus Christ has delivered to them in spite of their hardship and their suffering. Why? Because here Paul, uh, in fact Peter was uh, talking, uh, was also referring to this uh, word of life. In 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 25, it says the word of the Lord stands forever. Right? And Peter was referring to what Jesus himself said in Matthew 24. And verse 35, it says heaven and earth will pass away. Right? But my word will never pass away. Right? And then uh, in verse 23, he says, Through this living and enduring word of God, we have been born again. Right? So this word, this gospel, uh, this word of life that gives life, that never passes away, Paul told, tells the Philippian church to hang firmly on to it. This is the word that was preached to us, Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 25. And it's now recorded for us in the Holy Bible. And Paul's reminder to hold on to the word of life is because of human nature. We, are so in our old self, which is still in us, is so prone to stray and to follow others and to forget the revealed truth that, is, that gives life. And this is the danger of religious and zealous people. Uh, when they have a specific pet traditions or their favorite rule, uh, Jesus said this of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, right? Who questioned Jesus, why your disciples and you uh, don't live according to the traditions of the elders? And in Mark chapter 7, Verse 6 and 7, Paul, uh, Jesus uh, quoted Isaiah in Isaiah 29. It says, These people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. They worship me in vain. Their teachings are but rules taught by men. And verse 8 of Mark 7 says, You have let go of the commands of God and are holding on to the traditions of men. So the question for us to reflect on is what traditions of men are we holding on to what the worldly philosophies are we clinging to? Are we holding on to God's command, to what <clears throat> Jesus has revealed to us in His Word? Do we need to return to hold firmly to the Word of life, to the commands of God? Jesus told the Jews in uh, John chapter 8, He says, If you hold to my teachings, you are really my disciples, then you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. Right? And, John, uh, and Jesus, before he left, he promised the gift of the Holy Spirit. He said, the Spirit of Truth, the Counselor, the Comforter, he says, will be given to each one of us to guide us into all truth. The Spirit will take from Jesus' word. The Spirit will hear words from Jesus and He will make it known to us. Right? And the Spirit will teach us all things and remind us of everything that Jesus Christ has said. 
how ought we to hold on to this word of life? In Acts 17 and verse 11, offer us a way, a pattern that we can follow. And this is uh, what believers in a place called Berea, the Bereans, in Acts 17 verse 11, says they received the message, the word that was preached by Paul. How did they receive that message? They received it with great eagerness. And they examined the scriptures every day to see if what Paul said was true. So Paul himself was encouraging the Philippian church to adopt such an approach when they listen to preachers. Don't exhort everything that you hear uh, from preachers as if everything they say is the gospel truth. It may not be. Paul, uh, Jesus himself, has already warned that in the last days, false prophets will appear and they will uh, lead many astray. So uh, <clears throat> Jesus and Paul likewise encourage us to hold on to the word of life, the word of truth that can save us. Paul said in Colossians 3 and verse 16, he says, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly as you teach and admonish one another with gratitude in your hearts. Not grumbling, not complaining, but with gratitude in your heart. We need to do this more and more, especially in these last days. Jesus has warned in Matthew 24 and verse uh, 10 and 11, he says that, and we already read this at the very beginning, that at that time, in the last days, and we are in this broken world in these last <clears throat> days, many will turn away from the faith. Many false prophets will appear and will deceive many people. And the love of most will grow cold. But he who stands firm to the end will be saved. So, in my conclusion, let me say, let us stand firm in our faith. Why? Because our faith is precious. Peter puts it this way in 1 Peter chapter 1. He says, In this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you may have to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. In all these trials, remember Paul's calls for action, to work out our salvation with fear and trembling, to do everything without uh, grumbling or arguing, and to hold on or to hold out the word of life. He says, In all this, we are called so that our faith, which is worth greater than gold, which perishes, it says our faith may be proved genuine, that we may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. So are you ready for the day of Christ when he comes? Jesus underlined and taught this, that our faith is precious, our soul is beyond any measure. Jesus said in Luke chapter 9, he says, what good is it? for a man to gain the whole world and yet lose or forfeit his very self or his very soul. Right? Jesus warned in Luke 18. He says, when I, I tell you that Jesus, that he will come, but when the Son of Man come, will he find faith on the earth? So Paul is telling the Philippian church in Verse 16, he says, Paul was concerned of running or laboring in vain for nothing. Hence, Paul's call for urgent action. And when he heeds Paul's call for action to work out our salvation, to do everything without complaining, and to hold on to the word of life, Paul is 
telling the Philippine church that this is the pathway to become pure and blameless, verse 15, to become children of God without fault, verse 15, and to shine like stars uh, in the universe and to be ready for the day of Christ so that we do not regret living a life of futility, a life that is for nothing, but that we can rejoice that we have lived a life and that will be filled with the fruit of righteousness when Christ, <coughs> when that comes when Jesus Christ uh, returns. So, let me uh, close with this uh, prayer that uh, indeed we will <coughs> heed Paul's call for action and to stand firm uh, in our faith until Jesus Christ comes again. Let us pray. Father God, we thank you so much for this precious word from the Apostle Paul. We pray, Father, that uh, you will help us to be obedient, to do your good will uh, with you working in us through your Holy Spirit. We desire to see the Lord Jesus Christ, uh, to honour him on the day he returns. Help us to walk this path, this path of discipleship, so that we will be pure and blameless before you. We will represent you as your good children here without fault that we will shine forth like stars in the universe and be ready when jesus christ comes again we ask this for your glory in jesus precious name amen